You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget the free TuneIn app. We're there, too. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog on a Chicago landmark business since 1893. There is nothing like a Vienna hot dog or one of their Polish sausages, and their products are available coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and through Amazon. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, Chicago's top purveyor of fine meats, poultry, fish, fresh frozen prepared foods, wine, beer, and now serving fresh sandwiches. They've been a staple in the city since 1949. Today we feature the energetic voice of the Chicago Bulls, Chuck Swirsky. Looking back, I'd like to tell you a story that I was you know, full of confidence and 100%. I was scared out of my mind. I was so overwhelmed <laughs> with the city. It was huge. I, I knew zero. I knew no one. He arrived here a kid in his 20s, left for Detroit and Toronto, and returned to Chicago as the voice of the Bulls. It's been quite a career for Chuck Swirsky, who happens to be a citizen of both the United States and Canada, and proud of it. He's been involved in play-by-play, sports talk, and even a PA announcer of the Bulls, remember? Now he appears to be as uplifting and content a human being as you will find. So, Chuck Swirsky, tell me a story I don't know. Well, George, I'm going to tell you a story because a lot of people assume in our industry in sports, because it is a small fraternity, that we grew up in a very sports-oriented atmosphere, the environment where, hey, my dad played high school ball, my sisters played volleyball or basketball or track and field, or I had a great uncle that was a double-A ball player for the St. Louis Cardinals. And George, I'm going to tell you a story that none of that happened in my household, the way I grew up. My father was a naval officer, had zero interest in sports, zero. He was a man of great character, integrity, um, was a career naval officer, uh, was on the base quite a bit, loved to work on cars, loved carpentry. But really, uh, the only time we played ball in the backyard with a baseball and a glove, very seldom. And he passed away when I was in the sixth grade. And I'm gonna tell you a story about that. My mom, school teacher, third grade school teacher, elementary school teacher, sometimes a high school school teacher, zero interest in sports. And I'm gonna you know, wrap this up before we move on. So it is May of my sixth grade school year one month away from leaving elementary school to go into junior high school in Bellevue, Washington. 
I'd come home on a Wednesday from school. My dad is there and he says, Charlie, people refer to me as Charlie. I was never called Chuck until college. They said, Charlie, why don't we go to a ball game tonight? And I was stunned. I said, what dad? And he goes, we're going to a ball game. Now, Seattle at that time did not have a major league team. The pilots came in 69, but this was 1966. And the Seattle Angels, the AAA ball club of then the California Angels, and they played at Six Stadium in Seattle. So my dad takes me to a ball game against Salt Lake City. And at that time, Salt Lake City was the AAA affiliate of the Chicago Cubs. And so we're at the ballpark, Six Stadium, on a Wednesday night, watching the Seattle Angels against those Salt Lake City Bees. And we leave about the sixth or seventh inning because I had school the next day. So we go to the ball game. I come home from school. 24 hours later, I am pulled out of class, pulled out of class at lunchtime. My school teacher, Mr. Filler, calls me out in the hallway and says, quote, Charlie, I regret to inform you, your father died this morning. Mm. I said, what? He goes, your father has passed away. I fainted. Next thing I know, I'm in the house. I don't know how I got from point A to point B because it, it was dark. It, my, my brain was completely dark. And there is my mom weeping, my two sisters around her. My neighbors are there. The priest is there. And it was like, wow. And I think about that story, George, because here, my father, who was not a sports fan, completely out of the blue, took me to a baseball game just before his death. And I think about that meaning and what it means. And I'm still at times trying to figure it out, you know, here nearly 60 years later. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but all I can tell you is, that that is a story that is in my heart forever. You know, it, it's a sad story, but it's an inspiring story as well. Yeah, it is, because you know what? Um, my parents, and the way I try to raise my children, even to this day, they're adults now, is that he always put his children ahead of himself. And, you know, one thing I've tried to plant the seed with a lot of people in our industry is that from generation to generation, the greatest impact you can have on a person is to give of yourself and to give of your heart. And like my first mentor in this business, Vince Bagley, just passed away at the age of 93. I met him when I was 11 years old after my father died. My uncle, who was in Baltimore, knew the Bagley family. Vince was like the dean of sports in Baltimore. He was sports director at WBAL-TV. And I stayed with Vince and his wife, Barbara, and their six kids every summer. And I would go to the station and literally right next to his desk, do everything that he asked me to do, whether it was put slides at that time in a category by team so he could put them up where you would see a ball player over his shoulder when he was doing the sports news or running and, you know, ripping the AP and UPI newswire, all those things, George. And so mentorship is extremely important. 
I would be remiss right off the top to ask you about the new Bulls head coach, Billy Donovan. So tell me a story I don't know about the man who once led Joakim Noah and Florida to consecutive NCAA championships. Well, you know, here's the thing about Billy Donovan. I remember when he was playing ball at Providence, and I would watch Providence games. Rick Pitino was the coach, of course. And Billy Donovan was a tough, hard-nosed player. And very often, you can tell, George, and you've been around this business as long as I have, people can tell when they see a player what's going to happen in the future if that player elects to stay in the sport. I knew Billy Donovan was going to be a coach. When you saw him play, he had a cup of coffee in the NBA with the Knicks, you know, but the truth of the matter is he was going to coach. Ryan Archie Diacono is going to be a coach. You can already tell that. Joe Girardi, when he was with the Cubs as a kid, you could tell he was going to be a coach, period. Frank Robinson. I mean, I met Frank Robinson as a kid, as a kid when he was traded by Cincinnati to Baltimore. And you could tell the way he conducted himself and the swag that he had, he was going to be a major league manager, period. You know certain things are going to happen. So with his communication skills, his coaching ability, the fact that it's not about him and it is not about him, that's why I'm really, really excited about Billy Donovan as Bull. You know, this has been quite a roller coaster ride for you since you actually returned here to call the Bulls in 2008. Plenty of players, plenty of coaches too, and you've got to know just about all of them. So tell me a story I don't know about one of them, Derek Rose. Hey, with the deflection in the seal, down the floor, oh! handed by Derek Rose. Are you flat out kidding me? <laughs> what elevation, Derek! Rose, what a nasty slam from Ronnie Brewer. Well, one thing about Derek Rose, um, you know, I was I was not in Chicago during Rose's Simeon run. Obviously, I remember watching him play that one year at Memphis uh, because we did get NCAA basketball games in Toronto. I mean, everyone thinks it's hockey, 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 but we did get NCAA basketball, and so that was cool. I didn't see a lot of Memphis games, but enough. And then, of course, with the NCAA tournament. So I really had never met Derrick Rose until his first press conference with the Chicago Bulls. And very quiet, very unassuming. Um, And honestly, George, and you got to know Derrick as much as anyone. I mean, like, no ego. Like, no, he didn't big time anybody. I mean, no one. And we had a nationally televised game um, with the Bulls his rookie year. And before a game, George, as you know, the network producers and directors usually pull a coach aside to do those 20-second sound bites that they can use inside the game. So they take Derek Rose, and I'm right behind Derek, walking to the press room at the United Center. And... The producer opens the door for Derek to go into the room to do these headshots and the 20-second sound bites. And one of the assistants uh, happened to be um, a woman. And he allowed the woman to go ahead of himself into the door out of respect. And so I thought that was pretty cool by Derek. 
You are like me and so many others who were inspired to get into this racket at an early age. In my case, I just simply went downstate to SIU and came back and plied my trade in my home city. Uh, you did anything but. So tell me a story about being bold enough to leave Bellevue, Washington, come to a big city like Chicago with so many established franchises in history, not knowing the landscape, and then establishing a five-hour talk show that at first no one listened to because no one knew who the hell you were. Well, you're right. I end up in Columbus, Ohio, and I did a talk show, 7 to 11, and one night in, um, in late July, I get a call out of the blue, and it's from a headhunter, and they said there's a station, a Midwest station, 50,000 watts, that's interested in you, and I thought it was a friend of mine pulling a practical joke, so I hung up on them, and they called back like a minute later and said, don't do that. Um, this is a real deal. We need an air check from tonight unedited. And so I sent them four hours of sports talk from WBNS. They called back and said, we'd like to see you for an interview at WCFL in Chicago. Well, I had been to Chicago here and there and not a lot, you know, just in and out very quickly. Um, and so their, their office, George, was right next to Marina Towers. Yep. And I go on the 16th floor. John Watkins, the program director, interviewed me for 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And that was it. And he said, well, we thank you, boom. I thought that was it, that I wasn't going to hear from them. I didn't get the job. Great experience, you know, Chicago, the whole bit. He calls me back on Tuesday, three days after I interviewed. Uh, I interviewed on a Friday. He calls me back Tuesday and says, hey, we're interested in you. Uh, we need you to start next week. So <laughs> I said, i got to give notice. I said, he goes, well, if you want the job, you're going to be here. So I said, well, I want the job, period. And that's how I came to Chicago. So imagine you're now coming from Columbus to this huge sports crazy metropolis in 1980. You're the first to host a nightly four-hour show. This is long before Chet Kopic, and a dozen years before WSCR, the score hits the airways, and you've got to convince listeners you have what it takes, and they have the faintest idea who the hell you are. So tell me a story about the difficulty of those first few months. Well, you know what, George? Um, I was ridiculed by members of the media. I, 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 and granted, you know what, George? I, I probably, looking back, I'd like to tell you a story that I was, you know, full of confidence and 100%. I was scared out of my mind. I was so overwhelmed <laughs> with the city. It was huge. I, I knew zero. I knew no one. And, you know, had it not been for the kindness, and I'll, and I'll give you an example. Tony LaRussa had just taken over that season in 1979, and he was great to me. I went to the ballparks. The only time where I could really go was the weekends because I was on the air Monday through Friday. But on the weekend, I would go to him. I introduced myself. He was fabulous to me. He was great. Jim Finks of the Bears, great. No one knew who I was, but people driving in their cars, but all of a sudden started listening. And the radio TV critic 
of the Chicago Sun-Times, Gary Deeb, was in my corner. I had never met him. I didn't know him. I think in, in honesty, George, to this day, I think I probably have met him once, and that was in passing. But he was great to me. He wrote some very nice things that helped me get over the hump, and my, my profession embraced that. But, George, I can tell you, I, and this is the honest to God's truth, I remember at a Bears weekly media luncheon that they would hold at the Corona Cafe in oh, downtown yeah. Chicago, oh, yeah. that two on-air sports people literally laughed in my face over whether or not I was going to make it in this business. And I've never forgotten that. And it really, really motivated me, not only to prove to them, but prove to myself that I could do it. And so when people tell other people, you can't do this, or I don't think this, or you need that, you know what I'm saying? I can do this and I will do this and I am not going to allow others to derail my dreams, period. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Vienna Beef, Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt, and oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballpark, Sox and Cubs, stadiums, museums, and the zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. And remember, Vienna's not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the free TuneIn app or wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Chuck Swirsky on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You know, no one really knows, Chuck, where a career leads, but in your case, it led to a very interesting stop pretty much after you came here as the PA voice for the Bulls from 1980, I believe, to 1983, when the team had the likes of Reggie Theus, Artis Gilmore, David Greenwood, Jerry Sloan was the coach, and a few years after you arrived, they drew about as many fans to the Chicago Stadium as you had listeners in your early days on WCFL. Tell me a story I don't know about that experience. Well, the experience was great. In fact, doing PA was great because I was fortunate. I did the Cubs in 94 after Wayne Mesmer, uh, tragically, you know, and I'm so glad he's fine now. But, you know, he was, um, he was shot in the throat. And so I did fill-in work for the Cubs in 94. I did the Chicago Sting PA. 
I actually did one Bears game for public address and the Bulls. And so I get the Bulls. I auditioned for it. And uh, Rod Thorne actually was the decision maker. He was the GM. I love Rod to this day. And so we are doing uh, the public address. And we had one game. There was a game against the Nets. And it was snowing. And it started snowing early, early in the morning, (laughs) all day, like all day. And there is hardly anyone at Chicago Stadium. The referees made it. They were already in. Nets were in. You know, Bulls are there. Jonathan Kogler is the general managing partner. And he was great to me. And so he had the fans sit down the lower bowl. David Greenwood is looking around. David Greenwood was a player drafted second overall behind Magic Johnson. The Bulls lost the coin flip in 79. And David Greenwood is looking around. He comes to me and says, Chuck, you better introduce the crowd. Then you can introduce us. (laughs) That's a true story. Now, let me tell you a story, Chuck, that you may not know. It's kind of along those lines. So a long time ago, a mutual friend of ours in this business, David Schuster, you're very familiar with David. So we're freelancers, and we decided to count how many people were in the building for a Bulls game one night. This was in a regular night. The weather was fine. I want to say it was the 82-83 season. They weren't very good. Uh, It wasn't easy to get a head count because of the three levels of seats at the stadium. But then again, it wasn't that difficult seeing that there weren't many fans in the the building. So David and I did a count, and we came up with about 1,000. I'm talking about 1,000. So who knew the year after you left that job, a fellow named Michael Jordan came to town, and those seats filled up quickly. Look at what you missed. Well, uh, I'll give you a story about that. So now it's, it's late summer of 84. Steve Shamwald, who actually hired me and brought me back to Chicago in 2008, calls me and says, Chuck, you know, um, you're, you're doing DePaul because I started doing fill-in work. We were bringing in Lauren Brown and, and um, you know, Dwayne Stats was doing DePaul. Um, you know, we, it, it was just, you know, it was, a, it, it was almost like a carousel of different people every year. And, and because um, Joe McConnell, for example, did DePaul, but they had to leave in February to go to spring training. So I would end up doing 10, 12 DePaul games. And so finally, Dan Fabian, who is our GM of the WGN, said, Chuck, you know what? You have to make a decision. You're either going to do DePaul play-by-play or you're doing the Bulls. You can't do both. And I really want to do play-by-play, George, really, because it's like – awesome. And I love basketball. Like I love the sport. So I decided I'm doing DePaul. And then of course, Jordan takes over, but you know what, honestly, George, I've never regretted it because without that experience of DePaul, I don't get the university of Michigan job. And without the university of Michigan job, I certainly don't get the Raptor job. And without the Raptor job, I'm not back here in Chicago. So it all worked out. All right, we take another break. There's going to be a music interlude, and we'll come back. With Chuck Swirsky on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, you spent a number of years at WGN Radio working with some legendary figures, but you also became fodder and legend in a way through 
Bruce Wolf, then and always the creative and irreverent sportscaster here who decided to come up with a parody of you entitled Chet Chet Chet. It was a combination of the late Chet Kopic and yourself, and he was doing it as little as a few years ago. It was wildly popular. So tell me a story I don't know whether you liked it or dismissed it. 7.05 on the loop and on a Friday, sitting here with Bruce Wolf, of course. Chet, chet, chet. Hey, chet, 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 here with me, Lovato, Milano, folks. <laughs> I don't want to tell you. What a nice trill. What a ding-dong dilly with the light it is to immerse oneself with the schwab de beef that permeates the Chicago Bears training camp. Today, we profile one of the Bears who has not quite gotten the recognition that Mother Teresa deserves, but well, we speak of William Perry. Good old number 72. I'll tell you, if somebody had come up to me a few months ago and said, hey, Chet, or hey, Chet, you know who the most popular number 72 in Chicago will be by the time the first frost dump up here? I would have said, sorry, you have a list, sir, but of course, that must be Carlton Punch Fist, but I would have been wrong because it's the mega punch, William Perry. Perry reminds you. Yours truly, sincerely, yours very truly, yours respectfully submitted. I'm another number 72. I speak, of course, of Did I hear of it? Yes. Did I, uh, you know, was my ear glued to the radio to, to make sure that I knew everything that was going on behind me? No. And so, you know, I respect everyone in this business. When The only thing that I have issues with is that if you cross the line and it becomes personal. This wasn't personal. This is just an impersonation. So I get it. You know, so it's to me, it's no big deal. You, uh, there are so many more important things in life than worry about whether or not someone's doing a combination of two Chicago sportscasters uh, to have comedic relief. That's fine. You know, I, I, I don't have any problems with that. You know, George, as, as we get older and we see everything that, you know, I mean, it is a full circle of life. When I see young people enter the business, which is great, they're full of enthusiasm, and they can't wait to make their mark and their brand in the business. You know what? I've walked in their shoes. So at this point in my life, when I, you know, when you bring up Chet Chet Chat or some of the things that have occurred in my world, um, you know, I look back and I smile because that's what you do. It's called maturity. I've been in your shoes a little bit. I worked at the score in the early days and dealing with people like Terry Bors and Dan McNeil and Mike North and Dan Jickets. I kind of get the picture. You know, it's interesting when I'm looking back at, at your career, you left town watching the big bad Pistons beat up on Michael and the Bulls, Michael Jordan, of course. And what do you do? You leave for Detroit to become the sports director at WJR and the voice of Michigan basketball. Well, you know what, George, here's the story about that. So I'm called into the office by Dan Fabian of WGN Radio, and he goes, listen, we are really you know, having issues dealing with DePaul's radio rights, and we've got an offer on the table from Northwestern that we're going to take their football and basketball, and Dave Bennett is their guy. And I said, great, I love Dave, you know, and I do love Dave. He was so welcoming uh, when I came to Chicago. He is like personified class. I love him. And I said, I totally get that, Dan. I, you know what? I think it's a, a great fit for our radio station. Dave is a great fit for the radio station. And I'm happy that we're going to have some stability with Northwestern. I leave the room and I'm crushed. And I'm not going to lie to you. I am crushed because 
no more DePaul. And two weeks later, I get a call from WJR, University of Michigan, and says, Ernie Harwell, who I've known since I was 11 years old, recommended that we call you and we need a tape from your DePaul game. So I sent him a couple of tapes that I had play-by-play available with DePaul. They called me back. They flew me to Detroit, and they offered me the Michigan job to do play-by-play for basketball, pre-app and post for football, and sports talk at night. And so I am thinking to myself, you know, I'm Chicago and, you know, Detroit, and this is like, you know, Detroit and Chicago are bitter rivals, including the fan base. Oh. So I take, I take <laughs> the Michigan job, and, and George, uh, the tail end of the Fab Five, I came right after Jalen Rose and Juwan Howard left. The, I came in 94-95 with Ray Jackson and Jimmy King. But the legacy of the Fab Five and these young people would come back. Jalen Rose was with Denver at the time. He would come back. Chris Weber, Golden State, and then Washington, he would come back. You know, Juwan Howard, Washington, he would come back to Ann Arbor. And it was a very tight-knit group. And I can honestly tell you, George, and I sincerely mean this, had I not had an opportunity to join the NBA, which was my lifelong dream, I would probably still be the play-by-play announcer for the University of Michigan because I loved everything about Michigan. But when the Raptors called and when I interviewed and it turned out two years of radio, then eight years of TV before the Bulls, it was unbelievable. And so I can't say one negative thing about that period in my life. For people who don't know, Ernie Harwell was the beloved voice of the Detroit Tigers forever. Dave Ennett is still the sports director at WGN Radio, and I agree with you, one of the not only nicest professionals in our business, but one of the most helpful. So I'm not sure many people realize you're a citizen of Canada. That happened during your run as the voice of the Toronto Raptors. You had many memorable moments there, but in 2006, in Los Angeles at the Forum, you were behind the mic for an extraordinary event. I call it an event. Tell me a story I don't know about the evening when the late Kobe Bryant scored 81 points. Yeah. Well, you know what, George? Here, here's, again, a full circle. Kobe's agent was my broadcast partner at Michigan and a former Michigan player, Rob Polinka, who was the GM of the now NBA champion Lakers. I, I've known Rob forever. And as it turns out, he was going to law school after he played ball at Michigan. And I called him up and I said, hey, be my color commentator and I said if you can do home games do home games if you can do the road do the road and so he was my broadcast partner before he went to work at r and tell him so now he's the agent for Kobe Bryant and so we it's a Sunday night game and it's a sleepy Sunday night and actually George I had a cold and I was not feeling well I mean I was very weak I was just drinking tons of water, hot tea, and it was a six o'clock start time in LA. And there were no A-listers. I mean, the Raptors were having another Raptor type year, meaning it was not very good at that period of time in their franchise history. And the Lakers had guys like Chris Mim on their roster, Smoosh Parker, 
Uh, and so you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> so it was a Sunday night. Lamar Odom, though, was still a very good player. So it's a Sunday night, and all of his, and the Raptors are up by like 18 in the third quarter. And all of a sudden, Kobe just went off. And George, he went off. Flying to the lane. No. And who are they looking for? Number eight. Kobe wants it. He can feel it. Work it on Peterson. Double pump. Got it. You are looking at greatness tonight in Los Angeles. 72 points for Kobe Bryant. And so now I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. I mean, and so now he has. 79 points the crowd is going crazy and he gets fouled now remember george there's a big difference in when you see the headline saying kobe with 79 compared to kobe with 80 kobe with 81 and i was thinking about the pressure here he's got 79 points and i'm thinking okay i wonder how much pressure he feels to get that eight on the board and he's saying two free throws comes out of the game and yeah it was unbelievable so now I'll tell you a story. So now the next year, and I call up Rob, and I said, Rob, you know what? We'd like to get Kobe on our pregame show when we're at Staples to talk about the anniversary, one-year anniversary of his 81 against the Raptors. And so Rob says, okay, you know, John Black, the PR director, who you know of the Lakers, longtime Lakers PR for many, many years, not there anymore, but John ran – the, the show, so to speak, with media relations. And Kobe did not do, with the exception of network, did not do pregame stuff. And, but Rob made it happen. And Kobe couldn't have been nicer. And I, I got to know Kobe through Rob. And so he was awesome. And he was very humble and discussed the 81 game. And it was amazing because from that moment on, Every time I saw Kobe, whether it was in L.A. or in Chicago, he always took time, whether it was uh, prior to a game, after the game, we always had a conversation for about two, three minutes. Some of it was basketball. Some of it happened to be about Rob. Some of it happened to be about family. It was great. And the last game he played at the United Center, he held that big press conference and then I was able to talk to him, and I told him this is the last time I ever saw him, last time I ever talked to him, and I said, Kobe, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for always being gracious with your time, and thank you for allowing people to really enjoy you know, the passion that you had and the will that you had, because I do think it's influenced a lot of people in the game and outside the game. How lucky and do you feel today? Now. How lucky do you feel today that you were able to do that? Oh, I mean, you know what, George, I was actually at the um, Science Museum, and I was with my wife, and we're, and all of a sudden, my phone starts going off. And so, you know, my wife always tells me, put the phone away and just <laughs> lock in to what you're doing, and we're happening at the museum. And I said, and, like, there's a report, like, Kobe Bryant was in a helicopter crash, and now... Um, you know, going down the Twitter feed, and it, it's reporting that he's been killed. And my heart just dropped. I mean, just dropped. And I remember, George, I think 
you called me to do a quick interview yes uh, about that and i i mean to this day i still can't believe he's gone i mean he because the second chapter of his life george was going to be spectacular and i don't even think it had anything to do with basketball i mean the the children's books that he was writing you know the documentaries he was doing the um the the small films that he was putting out i mean it was just incredible and you know it's such a loss for all of us tell me a story i don't know is presented by the polina market and if you haven't been there what are you waiting for it's been chicago's premier market for the finest meats since 1949 and it's only getting bigger and better from the popular wagyu steaks to their porterhouse and tomahawk selections polina leads the way and you might just spend hours there perusing the frozen food section. Everything made fresh, including chicken pot pies, pulled pork, and a variety of meatloaves. You like brats? I love them, including their pork variety, which is so juicy and tasty on the grill. And now the Polina Market has seafood and sandwiches from the deli and wine and beer to match anything you buy. Plus, they expanded again, making the in-store experience even better, but you can still order online to pick up. Take my word for it, the Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. Mention you found them through this podcast. You're listening to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know with the voice of the Bulls, Chuck Swirsky. I want to make a transition to food. Yes, food. Have you ever combined salami and cheese with baby onions? I think you're going to have to tell me a story I don't know while I go out and get a napkin. Okay, so here's the story. I'm doing TV for the Raptors. And, you know, most people would email me because I, I put out my email address to everyone. But I got a letter, an actual letter from a fan of the Raptors who watched our games. And he's talking about the fact that he's glued to the TV but, um, you know, he gets hungry. And he said, you know, when the Raptors, have, you think, have won the game, can you just let fans know that the game's over so I can grab something in the refrigerator? He goes, I like salami and cheese. So a couple days later, Bulls are playing, or rather the Raptors are playing, and they're up by like eight points with 14 seconds to go. So I said, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. Well, the people, the guys in the truck, the women and men in the truck are talking to me in my little headphone piece, headset, and they're saying, salami and cheese, what are you doing? Like, what, what, what's that? We need to talk after the game. So I explained the story to them. And they said, oh, well, the next day, the receptionist, uh, Jeannie, calls me and says, Chuck, we're getting all these phone calls flooded about salami and cheese and, like, they, they, they love it. They want to know what's going on. So it started. And all of a sudden, we, we've got banners coming to the games. And, you know, salami and cheese, bring it out. We've got T-shirts, salami and cheese. I'm doing endorsements for the Pizza Pizza Company, salami and cheese pizza. The players who would come into a game, you know, during a blowout, the players would come in like with three minutes to go, the 15th man, 14th man who play only in, you know, in those type of settings. They would come in 
near the scores table where myself, Leo Routens, Jack Armstrong were sitting, and they'd say, hey, have you called it yet? And <laughs> so it was, it was crazy. It really was. Okay, so now you have salami and cheese and, and baby onions. It could be a nice combination, could cause a stomach ache. Baby onions. And it fell! Onions! Baby onions! The 55 Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Onions! Baby onions! Onions! Baby onions! Get out the salami and cheese, mama! This ball game is over! It's all good. Yeah, well, the onions, baby onions was actually... Here's the story. Bill Raftery created the onions, or yes. did he? Or did he, George? Uh -oh. Because... Because Ray Meyer, Ray Meyer actually used onions before Bill Raftery. In what way? He, he, you know what? He didn't use it on the air. He, we, one day we were talking about certain players, and he looked at me, and I love Coach Ray. I mean, Coach Ray and I were very, very, very close. Um, and we talked a lot about life, very seldom hoops, a lot about life. And he, one day uh, in the, um, I would say this was probably in 82, 83, because the 83 DePaul team uh, went to the NIT that year and we're talking and we're talking about players. And he goes, but does he have onions? Mm. I had no clue what he was talking about. Like <laughs> none, zero. I said, onions. He goes, yeah, onions. And I think I, I got the picture. <laughs> yes. And I said, oh, okay. And so, but he never used it on the air. So all of a sudden, Bill Raftery is using it. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, Raft is great. And I get all that stuff. So when um, uh, a Raptor would hit a big shot, like a big shot um, to propel a team to a victory or, or, you know, near the end of a game, you know, he goes, onions, baby onions. And so it's a combination of onions and the excitement of saying like, oh, baby, or whatever. You know, through all of this, Chuck, through the, your entire career, you became a proud father of three children, one of whom is in our business. So tell me a story I don't know where TC is and how he's doing. Well, he's doing well. He is the video coordinator of uh, the Memphis Grizzlies. He's got it, you know, and again, I'm putting, I'm putting my fatherhood aside here, but he's got a tremendous upside. His basketball knowledge, and I'm not talking about, you know, who played backup guard for the Celtics in 2008. I'm talking about his feel for the game is off the charts. I mean, he can look at a player and break down a player as well as anybody I've ever seen. And that's on him. That's not on me. That's him. Uh, he was exposed to it at a very young age but he truly is a student of the game. And you know what, George? Um, I'm proud of all three of my children. And um, whatever field they're in or elect to go. Um, but, you know, TC is, is a young man who, you know, was undersized as a player. But with his IQ and with his passion and his spirit, he was able to make himself into a high school starting guard player and not only that in toronto he played in a league and he guarded the curries he guarded and played against kelly olenic tristan thompson Corey joseph 
all these players that were in the greater Toronto uh, travel leagues and, and TC was right there competing against them. So wow, that's a pretty good uh, group. It was a good group. I mean, you know, Canada has, you know, they have 13 players in the NBA and more to come. Trust me. I mean, they've got it going right now in that country uh, because the grassroots basketball has taken off. The coaching is better. Players are better skilled. And, you know, a lot of high school kids go to prep school in the United States and then go to four-year programs. But, um, you know, Canadian hoops is has been – what a growth. Wow. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, all of you who are listening to this, to follow Chuck on Twitter at CTS Bulls because you are constantly positive and uplifting, which is really, really refreshing these days. Tell me a story I don't know. Why? Well, you know what, George? My mom was a huge influence on my life after, obviously, my father passed away. And, you know, to see a person work as hard as my mom did. Uh, My mom had to work. She was a school teacher after my father died. I mean, she was making very little money as as an elementary school teacher. So she took a job at a hospital in Bellevue, Overlake Hospital, and she worked in the gift shop. She also performed um, at a local theater company called The Play Barn in Bellevue, Washington. She was working three jobs, three jobs. And yet it was also my grandmother, my mom's mom, who came from Sicily that instilled so much of an inspiration and hope and the understanding that you can do whatever you want if you are determined and if you handle it and go about it the right way. And I'm talking about you do have to have a skill set. Okay, I get that. But how do you treat people? How are you going to approach this position? Are you doing it selflessly? Are you doing it as a team? Are you putting others ahead of yourself? And that's what I try to stress that there's no such word in my vocabulary as entitlement. None, George. Zero. You have to bring it every day. Uh, a blues singer by the name of Dick Mackey gave me some great advice. He, during a break in one of his sets, he came over to our table when I was in Columbus, Ohio, and he looked at me and said, Chuck, you better take care of your homework because if you don't, somebody will. And Uh, I will never forget that. And so I still work as hard today, George, as you do, and many people in our industry. But I work as hard today and am motivated today and passionate today as I was, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago when I was a kid. You know, and I'm 66 now, and I want to go for another 15 years. Finally. A question that I ask every guest as we end this segment of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Chuck, tell me what you would have done in life had it not been for sportscasting. Wow. Hmm. That's a very good question. You know what? I, I would, I, had I not gone into sports broadcasting, I would have been a social worker. Um, I, I um, took a lot of courses at Ohio University where I graduated from in communication and uh, sociology is a fascinating, fascinating pursuit of humanity. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that had this thing not worked out where the internships didn't come and the mentorship 
you know, steered me to a different place in my world. Had that not happened, there is no question in my mind, I would have been a social worker. Thank you, Chuck Swirsky, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago, The Score TV in Toronto, and the creative Bruce Wolf for those wonderful highlights. And big time thanks to TJ Reeves for his help and dedication in getting this podcast rolling. Also to Will Hatzel for his marvelous mixing, TT Shankin for her creative designs, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.